Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shobna Xavier. In each new episode, we feature a new book that has been recently published in the field and is relevant to the field of Islamic studies, and we chat with the author. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Shara Lee Therine, who is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Franklin and Marshall College. In his new book, Defending Muhammad in Modernity, published by the University of Notre Dame Press, Professor Shirley Thurin guides us into the world of the ulama of the late 18th and 19th century of South Asian Islam. Historically situated within the transitional and transformative era of the end of the Mughal era and the beginning of the British of British colonialism, the book focuses on native discourses, internal debates, and the ensuing logics utilized by Muslim theologians such as Shah Muhammad Ismail and Ashraf Ali Thanwi. Divided into three sections, it consists of a total of 12 chapters. Tareen attends to thickly describing the internal debates surrounding issues of political theology, especially regarding divine and political sovereignty, normativity and law, as they relate to the issue of Bida, and ritual practice, particularly of the Malwid, the celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, as means to unsettle debates surrounding religious boundary making, especially between tradition and reform. Threen's close reading of texts in Arabic, Urdu, and Persian unsettles the post-colonial program of the modern secular state, not for the sake of arguing for native agency under colonial rule, but rather as a means to amplify how Muslim theologians did not bend to colonial secular norms they were embedded within. The study models how a focused analysis of intra-Muslim debates, such as the one between the Barelvi and the Obandi schools of South Asian theological Islam, opens up invigorating possibilities for questions and problem spaces that transcend reductive binaries of law, mysticism, Puritan and populist, and reformist in tradition. The book is a tremendous contribution to the fields of South Asia and Islamic studies, while its theorizing on the twin forces of religion and secularism also adds greatly to conversations in the study of religion. Thereen has also included an appendix with discussion questions and pedagogical suggestions for how to use sections of the book in various undergraduate and graduate courses. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Shirley Thereen. Hi, Shirley. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shobana. Thanks so much for having me on uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Um, it's exciting to speak with another co-host, um, but this time you're a participant and we're talking about your book, Defending uh, Muhammad in Modernity. So I'm really excited about that. And I think you, more than anybody else, knows about our tradition and New Books in Islamic Studies that starts with uh, more of a personal autobiographical narrative. So I wonder if you could tell us about um, your journey of what led you to study um, Islam and South Asian Islam particularly, and like this moment of writing this important book. Well, let me begin by thanking you, Shobana, for taking so much of your time in engaging this book and uh, uh, in having this conversation. 
Uh, well, as you know, so many of our authors tell us when we talk to them on New Books Network, or many of them, as they say, for many of them, the narrative of how they got into Islamic studies or religious studies goes back to, to undergrad years. Uh, and for me, I think that's also the case. Uh, this narrative in some ways uh, is the formative part of the narrative is at uh, McAllister College, where I went from undergrad. And, uh, you know, I was uh, like many international students and economics major doing my sort of thing. And uh, then I became increasingly interested in the humanities when I actually took uh, classes on Indian philosophy, especially this one class on Indian philosophy, and started reading, you know, thinkers like Shankara, Nagarjuna, etc., beginning to think about things like the illusory nature of uh, existence and so on, which were very striking uh, ideas for me coming from a background which was much more heavily centered on uh, the physical sciences or mathematics and so on. So the idea of the humanities and wrestling with texts or idea of uh, uh, ambiguity as a way to engage life was something very refreshing and new for me. So that's where my uh, interest in the humanities uh, developed. Then I took more classes in religious studies. And, you know, when the time came to do something senior year, I knew that I would not do very well when it came to sort of a nine to five uh, uh, job kind of thing. So I had one kind of offered in the healthcare industry, uh, but uh, I realized that, you know, maybe grad school might be more uh, fulfilling. Um, so, yeah, so I basically quite randomly actually applied to or try, tried to apply to UNC Chapel Hill because I had heard of Karl Ernst and we had read his book on Sufism in my intro to Islam class. So I had no idea about the terrain of Islamic studies and things of that sort. But I actually, I, th- I remember I missed a deadline for that, for that institution. So then I was like, what is the place close to it that I can also apply to? And I heard that there is a place called Duke. So I applied to Duke and, uh, you know, was very lucky and fortunate to have gotten in and uh, then basically went there. So it was a very random set of contingencies that led me to come to Duke and, uh, uh, and, and from there, there on in, of course, uh, things uh, uh, really transformed in terms of my interest developed in Islamic studies, especially in South Asian Islam. I had the opportunity to, you know, study with some of the pioneers of the field, professors Ibrahim Musa, Bruce Lawrence, Carl Ernst, of course, and others. Um, so, so yeah, but that's basically how the narrative uh, uh, began in terms of my entry uh, into the field. It was just a set of contingencies uh, that led to this uh, becoming part of my professional life. And you could really see a lot of these trajectories in your voice and kind of the structure of the book, which I'm really excited to talk to you about. Um, one of the things that the book is really sensitive about is your positionality and also your methodological process. And I think you're engaging with a lot of different sources and various languages from Arabic to Urdu to Persian. Um, And you're also kind of navigating this really interesting kind of phrasing or approach that you're calling between the hermeneutic of suspicion and hermeneutic of um, submission. So I wonder if you could talk about what the significance of your methodological process was, some of your challenges and what you're really trying to do or be sensitive to throughout your project as a scholar. Sure. You know, as a way, Shobana, to sort of situate this project and the kind of conceptual intervention that it tries to make, uh, let me very briefly describe the book for your listeners and then try to situate it uh, in relation to the question that you asked. So in a nutshell, as we'll uh, get to unpack in the course of a conversation, this is a book on uh, Muslim intellectual traditions and debates in late 18th and the entirety of the 19th century uh, in South Asia, uh, primarily in northern India that engages the religious thought 
of uh, the most prolific and arguably among the most influential Muslim traditionalist scholars or the ulama of South Asia. Uh, primarily, it engages with the thought of scholars uh, uh, to an extent like Shah Waliullah and then uh, later on uh, Shah Muhammad Ismail, Fazl Haq Khairabadi, the pioneers of what came to be known as the Dioband School, Ashraf Ali Thanvi and Rashid Ahmed Kangohi, uh, the pioneer of the Barelvi School, Ahmad Raza Khan, and then the Sufi master of the Dioband School, Haji Imdadullah Muhajir Makki. And primarily it looks at this polemic, which has come to be known as the Barelvi Diobandi polemic, uh, which continues until today, in fact, is very intensely fought out even until uh, today, not only in South Asia, but in diaspora communities all around the world, and especially uh, in online polemical chat rooms and so on. Uh, and this polemic in large measure is about the question of how does one remember the prophet in modernity? And the key thematic was that as a community loses its political sovereignty, how does that shift the attention um, to the question of theological sovereignty and its relationship to prophetic authority and the practice of everyday life? So that basically is the kind of framing that I bring to the project of looking at this debate uh, and looking at intra-Muslim traditions of the sort centered on questions of theology, normative practice uh, and law, uh, not through uh, the prism of binaries like legal and mystical or reformist and traditionalist or inclusive and exclusive, but to look them look at them rather as what I call competing rationalities of tradition and reform, and more specifically what I call competing political theologies, meaning how does uh, uh, co- these competing notions of the relationship between divine sovereignty, prophetic authority, and the practice of everyday ritual life. So that basically is the kind of uh, project that uh, this is. Now, in terms of the of, of the conceptual intervention, one of the things that I've tried to do in this project is that, you know, I've often felt that the field of Islamic t- studies often operates in these two uh, parallel streams of scholarship, the sort of textual philological stream uh, invested in complicating and examining Muslim intellectual traditions and debates in multiple sort of uh, contexts and languages and so on. And then the sort of anthropological approaches to Islamic studies and more recently anthropological approaches inspired by the scholarship of Talal Asad, Sabah Mahmood and their students, interlocutors and those inspired by their thought that have tried to examine and disrupt uh, secular power and secular assumptions in terms of how we look at disciplined model life and religious life in uh, the context of Muslim majority societies and elsewhere for that matter. So what I've tried to do in this project is to try to forge some kind of a conversation between these two streams of scholarship in Islamic studies, the textual and the anthropological. And I've tried to do that not through a genealogy of secular power as much as I am indebted to this uh, stream of uh, anthropological scholarship, as I mentioned throughout the book and in acknowledgments and you know even a cursory read of Defending Muhammad in Modernity uh, will show my debt to this line of scholarship. Uh, but I've tried to disrupt the assumptions and the operations of secular power, not through a genealogy of secularism, but rather through a thick description and through a close navigation of Muslim traditions of debate and contestation. In trying to show that if one looks at these traditions um, thoroughly, closely, uh, with an eye to the logics of uh, the the archive of uh, Muslim scholarly discourse, uh, one might be able to disrupt the secular promise of uh, dividing these Muslim intellectual discourses and traditions into 
secular, disciplinary binaries like legal, mystical, the good Muslim, the bad Muslim, traditionalist, modernist, and so on and so forth. So in some ways, the larger politics of the project is one of disrupting liberal, secular understandings of religion and especially Islam, but that, but that done uh, through um, the close uh, navigation of intra-Muslim traditions of debate and contestation by connecting the problem space of these debates and contestation to larger theoretical questions uh, coming from different uh, fields in the humanities like political theology, ritual studies, uh, narrative theory, and so on and so forth. So that basically has been the kind of positionality in trying to make that possible. I have tried to uh, you know, listen carefully to the voice of the archive by looking at multiple sources in Arabic, Persian, and Urdu. These were the three languages in which these uh, these scholars or the ulama wrote in. Um, but to then constantly connect their thought to the larger problem space of the field of religious studies, and especially to the burgeoning field of critical secularism studies and in its attention to questions of power, politics, and uh, social order, uh, especially as that emerges in conditions of uh, colonial modernity. And can you say more about, so you mentioned in your discussion, the significance of locating the, a lot of the archival material you're engaging with is situated between the late 18th and much of the 19th century. And can you tell us a little bit more about what is important socially and politically it's happening in terms of India or South Asia conceptually, because a lot of this is impacting some of the ways that you're reading um, these sources, these primary sources and these um, important scholars, right? Sure, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so I think I think uh, I can uh, resume um, in terms of answering question the thread that I was developing in response to your last question, um, which is that you know one of the key things that I try to do in this project is to look at intra-Muslim traditions of debate and contestation on the figure of the Prophet and on the relationship between divine sovereignty, uh, prophetic authority, and the practice of everyday ritual life as competing political theologies. That's one of the key arguments of this project. But I'm trying to look at two um, sort of traditions of Islam in South Asia, whereby in one articulation of the tradition, there is a group of scholars for whom uh, energizing one's focus on preserving the absoluteness of divine sovereignty in a moment of political crisis and fragmentation after the fall of the Mughal Empire, or rather in the transition between the Mughal Empire and British colonialism, this imperative of um, uh, salvaging and energizing divine sovereignty by undermining those ritual practices that they thought were a threat to the divine sovereign in the public sphere, that perhaps exalted the prophet in a manner that confused divine sovereignty and prophetic authority. So that's how divine sovereignty, prophetic authority, and everyday ritual life was connected for them. And then another group of scholars challenged this kind of a political theology by arguing that Divine sovereignty and prophetic authority are inextricably intertwined. You cannot divest, you cannot separate the absoluteness, the singularity of divine sovereignty from the exceptionality of prophetic authority. So the exceptional divine sovereign and the exceptional beloved of the divine sovereign, the prophet, they are intimately interlocked. And the job or the responsibility of the community was to precisely cultivate a social and moral order through ritual practices like the celebration of the Prophet's birthday and other such rituals that I look at uh, that further punctuate this kind of a uh, political theology that exalts the exceptional 
status of the prophet and through that affirms divine sovereignty. So that in a nutshell are the two competing political theologies that I look at uh, in the course of this book. Now, political theology as a category, as it has been employed in the field of religious studies and in the larger field of critical secularism studies, etc., in the last few decades, inspired by the scholarship of Carl Schmidt, who you know famously argued in his uh, text Political Theology that all uh, uh, modern uh, uh, political concepts are secularized theological concepts, primarily, of course, the modern state, which uh, operates according to the logics of the divine sovereign, but in a different kind of an idiom. So that has been the primary problem space of the field of political theology, um, uh, examining and then disrupting the operations of secular power and its uh, self-congratulatory claim of having eclipsed religion and tradition by showing the theological foundations of liberal secular politics. That, in a nutshell, to sort of summarize a very complicated field with some very interesting threads, that has been the kind of problem space in which the field of political theology has operated. In this book, what I've tried to do is I have tried to invert that problem space by looking at not so much the theological foundations of secular politics, but rather by looking at the political aspirations and imaginaries that often underlie, while not articulated as such, in these theological debates and contestations. So, for example, to give a concrete example, in part one of the book, I spend a lot of time looking at this uh, really fierce polemic that erupts between these two major scholars, Shah Muhammad Ismail and Fazl al-Kharabadi, in the early 19th century on the question of prophetic intercession, the capacity of the Prophet to in- intercede on behalf of sinners on the Day of Judgment. And Shah Muhammad Ismail, uh, consistent with his larger project of trying to preserve divine sovereignty, really uh, limits this capacity and so on and so forth. And Fazl al-Kharabadi comes back and uh, you know, critiques Shah Muhammad Ismail for deflating the exceptionality uh, and the authority of the prophet. Now, while examining this polemic or this debate, what I was interested in was, can we discern some kind of larger political projects which uh, anchor um, the this seemingly theological dispute? And what I tried to argue was that it's precisely this hinge moment, this moment of transition in South Asian history, in the transition from the Mughal Empire to British colonialism, where, of course, in many ways, the, the theatrics and the, the sort of performativity of expressing and establishing sovereignty continues uh, in the British Empire as it did in the Mughal Empire, in the sort of choreography of the Mughal court or the Darbar and how that continues in British colonial time. So there are some similarities, but then there are also some major ruptures that, that, that uh, take place, what I call these shifting sociologies of sovereignty, in that the performativities in many ways are quite similar but the meanings that are invested in sovereignty in terms of how the political sovereign or the sort of uh, political elite interacts with the, uh, the community, the meaning of that interaction, the meaning of how sovereignty plays out uh, uh, does go through a very important rupture and shift. And that I show in chapter one by engaging the thought of seminal thinkers in this field, such as, uh, you know, Sudipta Kaviraj, uh, Bernard Cohn, David Gilmartin and, and many others. Um, so, so what I was interested in was in this uh, transitional phase in Indian Muslim history or in South Asian history more broadly, how does that inform theological debates on divine sovereignty? Again, the key theme of the book is with the loss of political sovereignty, how does that inform debates on the status of divine sovereignty and then its effect on the relationship between divine sovereignty 
prophetic authority and the everyday life of the community or the ritual practices of the community. So I, 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 I uh, contextualize uh, this intra-Muslim polemic precisely in this uh, transitionary moment in uh, South Asian history where the status of sovereignty is in flux and hence generates these very interesting and productive debates. And so from part one, um, which you've just kind of outlined what you do, you shift in part two really to kind of the two groups that you're focused on in, in terms of the, the debates or the intra-Muslim uh, theological debates. And they are, they are the Baralvis and the Deband. So can you say more about who these groups are, the key players, and the significance for the conversation that you're about to have, particularly in terms of ritual practice of the Maulid and the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad for these two groups? Sure. So in some ways, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of the uh, uh, time period that this book uh, uh, focuses on, it's uh, the late 18th and the entirety of the 19th century. So although the book, uh, in terms of its description and so on, is uh, focused on what I call the Berilvi Diobandi polemic, it actually looks at this larger context in terms of the precedence of this polemic also in the late 18th century and then the early uh, 19th century. So the first part of the book looks at uh, a polemical uh, encounter between these two major scholars, uh, Shah Muhammad Ismail, who was the grandson of uh, the famous uh, Shah Waliullah, and then Fazda Kharabadi, who's from this other sort of major uh, tradition in South Asian Islam. You can think of these two as two interesting overlapping uh, intellectually, but also diverging in interesting ways families, the, the Waliullah family and the Kharabadi family, and their different programs of, uh, of religious reform and conceptions of uh, what an Indian Muslim public uh, should look like at this moment. And primarily, the book is called Defending Muhammad in Modernity because I, I realized as I was writing this book that many of their debates in some ways centered on the figure of the Prophet, uh, prophetic intercession and its uh, nature and limits, uh, the boundaries of innovation to the Prophet's normative practice or bid'ah that I focus on in part two of the book, or the Prophet's knowledge of the unknown or ilmul ghaib, uh, that was the central or the most sort of uh, incendiary uh, sort of question of debate between these two groups uh, that I look at in chapter 11 uh, of this book. Um, or the uh, uh, capacity of God to produce a second Muhammad, or what is known as Imkan and Nazir, um, that I look at in part one of the book. Uh, so all of these different debates in some ways centered on the figure of the Prophet. So in some ways one can look at this debate as competing imaginaries as you know, uh, uh, that 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 are anchored on competing imaginaries of the prophet, that then correspond to competing notions of an ideal Muslim public. So, in some ways, the prophet's body comes to stand as what one might call a sort of a synecdoche for the Sharia or for normativity, um, and that is something which I think is quite peculiar to the 19th century context. Of course, these debates have a much longer history in Muslim intellectual history and also in South Asian Islam, more, more broadly speaking. But I do try to capture some very important shifts that nonetheless uh, take place. And very briefly, um, you know, one of the major shifts that, that, uh, that happens uh, from, say, the late 18th to the 19th, uh, early 19th and the late 19th century, is that one, the figure of the Prophet becomes much more contested, as I just mentioned. Um, uh, secondly, the, the scope and the degree to which everyday practices and everyday ritual practices become subject to contestation. 
everyday devotional practices like the celebration of the Prophet's birthday. Of course, it's a much longer debate in Muslim history, but they become especially ferocious in the 19th century. Uh, ritual practices like, uh, you know, distributing food to the destitute on the third day of someone's death uh, as an act of charity, with the logic being that the blessings received from this act of charity will then be uh, transmitted to the soul of the deceased. This becomes a major contested practice. Uh, to other kinds of everyday practices like wedding ceremonies, engagement ceremonies, and you know, uh, uh, chicken fighting contests or kite flying and uh, things of that sort. So the way in which everyday life itself becomes a theater of contestation is something that is quite peculiar uh, to the 19th century. And in many ways, one of the key scholars who I think plays a pivotal role in this popularization or in this uh, sort of uh, intensification of everyday life as uh, a sub, as a theater of uh, contestation is uh, Shah Muhammad Ismail. And specifically his book, uh, uh, Fortifying or Energizing Faith, called uh, in Urdu, Taqwiyatul uh, Iman, which is sort of a primer text in Urdu in which the main objective was, uh, again, to sort of critique everyday ritual practices that, in his view, uh, served as a threat to divine sovereignty or to the absoluteness of divine sovereignty in the religious imagination of the masses. And this text becomes extremely controversial. It's one of the first texts that are, you know, in the form of an Urdu primer. So according to one count, more than 250 refutations of this book have been written. And uh, Delhi, in some ways, uh, gets divided into competing groups of scholars and commoners uh, in terms of their reception of this text and this scholar. Some call Shah Muhammad Ismail as a great awakener. Remember, this is around the same time as you have sort of great awakeners in American religious history in Northeast US, for example, that I also refer to when I point to in the book. Um, uh, while others look at him as the black sheep of the Valiola family, the otherwise esteemed Valiola family, who was uh, uh, bringing into the public sphere unnecessary debates like, can God produce a second Muhammad or not? Or can one celebrate the Prophet's birthday or not? Or can God lie or not? And so on. And they look at him as a scholar of inferior capacity uh, who is just uh, stoking the sensitivities of the masses. And one of those scholars is Fazdeh Kharabadi, who, who writes a stinging rebuttal of Shah Muhammad Ismail's thought in uh, his Persian text. And this, in, this intra-Muslim polemic in the early 19th century, which is largely individual-based, then takes on a much more group-centered orientation by the late 19th century. As British power gets more and more consolidated, these intra-Muslim debates and polemics also take on a much more group-centered orientation. And uh, Muslim scholars get divided into competing normative orientations, or the word in Urdu being masalik, uh, singular maslak, uh, which comes from a word suluk, meaning you know, normative practice, but takes on a much more competitive meaning in the South Asian context as competing groups of uh, Muslim scholars, each with their own normative program of how the tradition ought to be interpreted and implemented in the public sphere. So in some ways, one can look at this uh, book as telling a story of how indigenous Muslim traditions get more and more intensified and competitive as British colonial power uh, also becomes more consolidated. So one of the main things that I've tried to do in this book, and that's perhaps my one of my major interventions in the field of South Asian studies, is that I've really tried to shift the camera of analysis away from the colonial consolidation of power and reification of religion as a category of life to the indigenous actors to see what they did with this reified category of religion. And then to also look at some points of uh, fissures between the colonial reification of religion as a category of life 
and how religion as a category emerges in these intra-Muslim debates from the early 19th uh, to the late 19th century. And you are very clear, particularly as you're in your concluding sections, that this move that you're making in terms of focusing on, you know, the native voice, as you say sometimes, is not about kind of making this argument about native agency, but you're actually trying to unsettle and like um, focus or amplify all these different voices that make us really question how we think about boundary making, how we think about religion and secularism and reform and tradition, these kind of huge threads that are running throughout the conversations of your key interlocutors textually, but also you as a scholar are trying to navigate, which I think is um, really fascinating in the conversation um, you're having in the book. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that more or you want to pick up on that. Sure, but very briefly, I, that's a very uh, astute observation, uh, Shobana. Thanks so much for that. Uh, you know, one of the challenges conceptually that I faced when looking at a scholar like, say, Shah Muhammad Ismail, who's a really fascinating character, and I should add that in addition to Taqwiyat Iman, which is his much more well-known text, this uh, sort of Urdu primer uh, uh, energizing faith, uh, one of the things I try to do in this book is to also look at other aspects of his intellectual persona. So he is oftentimes caricatured both by his opponents and in some measure his supporters even as this kind of a Puritan, sort of a masculine Puritan scholar uh, who wrote just for the masses and awakened the masses to this project of uh, reform, who took the project of reform uh, to the public, which is something that I do show in the book also. So, you know, he sort of uh, uh, leads this major widow uh, remarriage uh, uh, campaign is a really interesting sort of campaign in which um, uh, he, his own sister apparently is a widow and all his life he himself admits that he had internalized what he calls in, in quotations, um, uh, my quotations, not his, uh, sort of this Hindu taboo against a widow remarriage. And then later on, he meets his mentor, this guy called Sayyid Ahmad uh, Barelvi, uh, not to be confused with the Barelvi order, uh, this sort of a millenarian charismatic figure uh, who's less of a scholar than him, but is nonetheless his uh, sort of Sufi master. And it's really under his influence that he sort of shackles uh, or uh, sort of uh, disrupts this uh, this uh, taboo that he had and then goes to the public and leads this major widow re- uh, remarriage movement. Or then, of course, the, the way he dies is through this really uh, famous or rather infamous, depending on the perspective, uh, jihad that him, uh, Sayyid Ahmad, and their associates undertake against uh, the Sikhs uh, in uh, what is today the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, in trying to liberate the Pashtun community of that region from what they saw as the tyranny of Sikh rule. But eventually this jihad movement goes sour after uh, a few years and the Pashtuns eventually actually and the Sikhs turn against these uh, North Indian Mujahideen. So I look at this whole uh, episode by looking at some uh, 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 sort of archives of letters in Persian and Arabic that Shah Ismail uh, corresponded uh, through these letters with other sort of Muslim leaders um, uh, in the region. Uh, and I also look at the cases of some very interesting sort of people who engaged in this jihad and then came back to North India and wrote eyewitness accounts of what they saw unfolding in this jihad campaign. So I also analyze uh, this uh, these uh, sort of uh, archives and trying to look at this jihad as uh, uh, articulating a certain kind of a vision of the political rather than evaluating it as... Uh, have you know an episode which was good or bad in South Asian history as it has been looked at in even some serious scholarship. So so Shai Smile has this aspect to his personality, this jihad movement, this widowry marriage movement, you know, going to uh, brothels and trying to reform prostitutes by 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 uh, reciting the Quran to them and so on. 
but then Shai Smile also has another uh, part of his personality, which is a heavily intellectually sophisticated and specialized aspect where he writes in Arabic and Persian. So I also look at uh, chapter four, this very interesting text of his called Station of Leadership or Mansabe Imamat in Persian, where a very different kind of Shai Smile uh, uh, becomes visible to us, uh, who is not this kind of a shock and awe uh, strategy Shai Smile, but rather he in fact is quite willing to tolerate a morally sluggish political leader, uh, even a completely morally depraved uh, political leader, as long as what he calls the public markers of Muslim distinction, shi'ar uh, islam the public markers of Muslim distinction, remain current in the community. So that's quite interesting because what that shows is that increasingly political sovereignty becomes less and less invested in the figure of the uh, Muslim state and more and more invested in uh, the choreography of everyday life in the public sphere. So as long as Muslim markers of distinction remain operative, uh, you know, that's uh, that's uh, a tolerable form of a Muslim polity. But anyway, so that was a very long prelude to the conceptual point that I uh, that you the, uh, pointed to and I wanted to respond to, which is that when you look at a figure like him, who seems conceptually so similar to sort of uh, modern Protestant understandings of religion, right? He's anti-hierarchical when it comes to things like intercession. He's taking the religion uh, or the project rather of religious reform to the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, forms which have some very interesting parallels with sort of the evangelical uh, sort of or the Puritan uh, movement in in American religious history and so on, Uh, who's writing in these Urdu primers, so using the printing press uh, effectively and so on. It becomes very tempting to look at a figure like him as an instantiation of a developing and emerging Islamic Protestant sensibility. Mm -hmm. So then the conceptual question which emerges is, does one read a figure like him as being sort of a Muslim Protestant figure? Right. Um, or does one look at him differently? Right. And what I tried to do was to argue that I think it's unsatisfactory to look at a figure like him uh, either through a prism where you collapse him to a modern Protestant understanding of religion or if you look at him as some kind of a person completely uh, divested from or completely sort of separated from the colonial episteme either. So what I try to do is that one can perhaps uh, stay away from this very binary between uh, sort of collapsing into colonial uh, power or being completely separated from or insulated from that power either. Uh, uh, by looking at the internal logics of how his uh, uh, project of reform unfolded. And by doing that, what I try to do is to move beyond this kind of what I call the continuity rupture binary in the study of South Asian religions and also in the study of religious studies more broadly. That, you know, rather than, uh, uh, I mean, this is an important question. It remains an important question, the status of colonial power and how it impacts indigenous religious communities. And is it a rupture or is it an underlying continuity? What I try to argue is that there are both ruptures and continuities. And perhaps the time has come to perhaps look at and try to navigate new problem spaces, that perhaps the continuity rupture problem space has reached a certain exhaustion point, uh, to borrow from the anthropologist David Scott, who famously argued that one has to revisit these problem spaces to see if they are yielding the same kind of purchase that they once may have. And I try to offer a new kind of a problem space by introducing this idea of competing political theologies that looks at figures like Ismail neither as products of uh, a colonial Protestant episteme, nor as completely separated or insulated from that episteme, but rather to focus on the 
particularities and logics of his thought uh, in a manner that might be uh, conceptually productive. So I promised I would be brief, but the topic is uh, so massive, this continuity rupture topic that, uh, you know, uh, uh, and one that I, you know, I used to be much more passionate about it, but even still the passion is there, I guess. Yeah, it's very, you're very passionate about it. Um, and I could tell, and I think, you know, that the comment that you've made in the end in terms of what you're trying to do to unsettle these notions of ruptures and continuities, particularly at the end of part one, was very um, clear. And, you know, um, and I think it's definitely one of the key interventions that you're making. Another point I want to pick up on, we've spoken a lot about Shah Muhammad Ismail. Another figure you do um, engage with a lot, particularly in part two, is um, Ashraf Ali Thanwi, and particularly in terms of conversations around Bidah. Um, and I'm really interested in kind of your um, translation um, intervention that you're making of this term. Um, if you could tell us a bit more why it was important for you to um, um, think about this as heretical innovation and not just as innovation as a lot of kind of Islamic studies scholars think about it. What is um, kind of Thanwi's approach to these kind of notions or categories or different types of um, heretical innovation? And then from there, hopefully we could talk about what was perhaps very pertinent in terms of the choreography around practice and um, ritual veneration around Prophet Muhammad, which will be the Maulid. So I know there's a lot of questions, but... Sure, thank you, uh, uh, Shobhana. Um, so Ashraf Ali Thanvi, of course, is a major, uh, uh, one of the early pioneers of the Deoband school, dies 1943, and one of the most prolific, uh, prolific uh, you know, not only South Asian Muslim scholars, but modern Muslim scholars. Uh, so in part two of the book, I look at these Bareilvi uh, Diobandi debates on the question of bid'ah or heretical innovation. Uh, bid'ah is a very interesting, and of course, a very incendiary and a very charged concept, but also conceptually a very productive and interesting concept that operates as sort of a borderline concept between normativity and heresy in Muslim thought. And key to the conceptual architecture of bid'ah as sort of an index of transgression in Islam is this idea of humanly innovated practices that oppose the normative model or the normative practice of the Prophet or the Sunnah by cultivating a parallel order of normativity or by simulating the Sharia or divine order of normativity. So for people like Ashraf Ali Thanvi and the Deoband pioneers and Shah Muhammad Ismail uh, before them, the Deoband pioneers really in some ways continue the legacy of Shah Muhammad Ismail and they uh, revere him in in, in uh, uh, very explicit ways. Uh, for them, the main problem in terms of the conduct of the masses in uh, North India at this time, and of course this logic now continues even until today in South Asia and elsewhere, their main problem was not that you know practices like, say, the celebration of the Prophet's birthday or other practices like distributing food to the, uh, to the destitute on the third day of someone's death and so on. Their argument was not that these practices are bad in and of themselves, not at all. In fact, they consider these practices to be uh, commendable practices. Their main problem was that the intensity, the regularity, the passion with which the uh, public was engaging in these practices had reached a level that simulated obligatory acts of religion, religion like praying, fasting, giving charity, and so on. So in some ways, this 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 quality of simulation was what made Bidah such a threatening uh, uh, idea and uh, uh, sort of marker of uh, 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 heresy in their thought, in their religious imaginaries. 
so in some ways, you know, Ashraf Ali Thanvi would often say in his text that bid'a is oftentimes even worse than sort of uh, outright uh, sort of uh, unbelief, etc. Not theologically, not in terms of its uh, sort of eschatological or uh, its uh, outcome in the in the afterworld, but because those people who are engaging in these practices, they don't even know that they're engaging in a sinful practice because they are engaging in these practices as if they were devotionally salutary practices, as if they were sort of devotionally um, uh, good practices and so on. So this uh, this quality of simulation is what made Bida so dangerous as a concept. And so that was their, in terms of the law and theology, in terms of the interlocking of law and theology, their main argument was that by engaging in non-obligatory practices or in what one might call simply permissible practices uh, with a regularity and with a passion that simulated obligatory practices, the masses were confusing obligations with the permissibles. And that was undermining the boundaries which had been stipulated by the divine sovereign. So by doing that, the masses were undermining divine sovereignty. That's how law, theology and practice uh, interacted. The practice of engaging in these practices uh, with this kind of passion and zeal uh, undermined divine sovereignty. How? Through the tampering of the legal boundaries between ob- obligations, permissibles, and so on and so forth. So that's basically what I call a political theology, a relationship between theology, law, and everyday practice. So that was one key aspect of their thought. The other key aspect of their thought had to do with what I call uh, the relationship between normativity, time, and history. Normativity, uh, sort of uh, time and history. And uh, very briefly, there the idea was that the the masses, uh, sort of uh, uh, the awam, uh, the public, engage in practices like, say, distributing food on the third day of someone's uh, death. They engage in the specific forms of these practices that have come down to them from their sort of... Uh, ancestors generation after generation people have become so attached to the specific forms of these practices that they have lost sight of the larger purpose of the practice so people distribute food on the third day of some uh, third day of someone's death not as a marker of uh, uh, piety or not for charity but to show off their wealth uh, but to sort of uh, remain uh, attached to the specific way in which this practice is conducted uh, so the original purpose, what they call the original purpose of this ritual has been lost on them. In other words, time and history, the accumulated sort of burden of time and history has made them lose the normative purpose of a ritual. So they saw their own role as uh, custodians of a tradition who were awakening the masses from this stupor, from this uh, condition of being uh, so morally lethargic that they have forgotten the very purpose of the ritual. So in some ways, they saw their role as interventionists in history who were awakening the masses to their responsibility to a certain kind of a uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, moral and normative history. In other words, they should know the history of a particular ritual and the purpose of a ritual and not get so attached to its specific form. And so that's how they saw their religious authority and, and, and how time and history or how time, history and habit interacted with each other. And one of the tangible ways in which you kind of unpack this uh, relationship between um, law, politics, theology in a ritual context is specifically through kind of both the defense of and contestation surrounding the Maoli practice, right? So can you say a little bit more about that? 
Absolutely. So the the Maulid or the celebration of the Prophet's birthday works as a really good uh, uh, test case or a really good application of this particular sort of conceptual point that I was trying to develop in my last uh, answer. So uh, the Maulid, uh, perhaps more than any other ritual in the 19th century, was the most contested ritual, the most uh, uh, ferociously contested ritual. Although I should add that the specific sort of charges of unbelief that were leveled by some scholars over the others was not so much on this particular question, but that was on the question of uh, the Prophet's capacity for knowledge of the unknown or ilmul ghaib. So in some ways, in terms of the sort of, uh, 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 yeah, sort of the specific question of unbelief or this charge that came up in that particular context. But the Maulid, uh, without a doubt, is the uh, topic on which the most uh, ink has been spilt uh, when it comes to these two different groups of Muslim reformers. So very briefly, I think this is a good sort of case study for these two different schools and their and their uh, models of uh, tradition and reform. So for the Dioban school, uh, in many ways, uh, the Maulid really uh, confirmed their suspicions about the conduct of the masses. Again, their argument was that this is a completely commendable practice. In fact, it's a, an excellent practice, which is meant to revere and honor the Prophet. But the manner in which the masses were engaging in this practice with a certain regularity and with a kind of passion that simulated obligatory acts of, uh, of religion. So the specification of a date on every year, it has to be done on a specific date uh, in the month of Rabi'ul Awal, for example. Or that the specific form in which the choreography of the ritual must unfold in terms of when people must stand up to offer their salutations to the Prophet with the belief that the Prophet himself appears at this gathering to bestow his blessings upon its uh, participants. Or that, uh, you know, certain kinds of um, uh, sort of uh, 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 panegyrics have to be sung during this uh, particular ritual. Uh, or that, um, uh, you know, that uh, the, the, the kind of uh, specificities in terms of uh, who will speak and how will, uh, you know, sermon unfold and so on. So they saw this kind of attachment to the specificities as uh, uh, simulating uh, the obligatory acts of, uh, of religion. And they found that very problematic. And also they, they, they thought that you know, the, the, the people have become so attached to these specific forms that they have lost uh, touch with the larger purpose of, uh, of uh, the ritual. And their other argument was that there are many quote-unquote, moral corruptions that have entered into this ritual in terms of sort of the intermingling of the two genders, uh, the kind of desires that that generated, uh, and the kind of excessive wealth that was often uh, uh, expended, the pomposity that was often displayed, the sort of affective uh, sort of uh, uh, environment in which these rituals unfolded were a bit too uh, uh, sort of ostentatious and uh, 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 erotic to the senses, and so on and so forth. Um, the opposing school of thought on which I spend a lot of time in this book also, of course, the Barelvi school on which chapter nine is primarily devoted. Their main argument, there were two main arguments that they then uh, lodged as a counterpoint to this whole reform project. Their first main argument in terms of the law and theology uh, point that I uh, talked about uh, a few moments ago was that unless a practice has been explicitly forbidden in the Sharia, the human actor cannot forbid it. Uh, unless there was a very good reason to do so. So their main argument was that, you know, practices like the celebration of the Prophet's birthday, etc., they are permissible according to the Sharia. So to call it impermissible is in fact tampering with the boundaries of the Sharia. So Ahmad Raza Khan, who is a really uh, prolific and important uh, scholar and founder of the Barelvi order, his main sort of legal argument was 
that the default position of uh, 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 these practices, which are neither obligatory nor forbidden, is that of permissibility. And one cannot just call it a moral corruption and uh, call it impermissible uh, unless there was some really good reasoning that went into it. And his argument was that by calling these rituals, which God had called permissible, uh, forbidden, the Deoband pioneers were in fact tampering with the Sharia, which was the very point and argument of the Deoband scholars. So in some ways, he inverted their very logic that you are so concerned about tampering with the values of the Sharia. You are the ones who are actually tampering with the Sharia by calling forbidden ritual, but which God had not forbidden. Uh, so his main argument was that, that yes, the masses sometimes may engage in these practices in corrupt uh, ways. So that's a very important point, Shobana, that I also uh, highlight throughout the book. Especially in this one chapter in which I actually show the overlap between the seemingly opposed schools, uh, this chapter called Convergences, chapter 10, that Ahmad Raza Khan also had a notion of reform. This is not a debate between reformists and anti-reformists. He also was extremely uh, frustrated uh, at times, uh, dissatisfied with the conduct of the masses what they did at rituals like the Maulid and other rituals and so on. He was extremely critical of the conduct uh, conduct of women, for example, at these different rituals. So these reform projects, of course, are extremely gendered in terms of their notion of reform, um, which is also commonality that they that they share. Ahmad Raza Khan and Ashraf Ali Thanvi, seemingly two major rivals, if you look at their texts on wedding ceremonies and uh, engagement ceremonies, there are incredible overlaps and some hilarious overlaps that I also talk about uh, in the book. Uh, uh, they call it the greater doomsday and the lesser doomsday, respectively. So it's not as if Ahmad Raza Khan does not have a notion of reform. But his main argument was that if a ritual gets corrupted by the conduct of the masses, you uh, you try to remove that corruption. So if someone is understanding the maulid, for example, as an obligatory practice, you sit that person down and you try to explain to them. You try to correct, you try to purify, you try to correct their intentionality. You don't completely outlaw the practice. You don't take the sort of uh, extreme measure of outlawing a salutary, uh, a beneficial ritual practice. Whereas the Deoband school, their argument was that things have reached such an emergency stage that the conduct of the masses has reached such levels of moral corruption that the only option available to us is to cut off the means uh, to the corruption, to outlaw, to block the means to that kind of uh, moral corruption. So that was the sort of uh, subtle but very important legal theological disagreement between these two schools that when a particular devotional ritual which is permissible according to the sharia uh, simply permissible when such a ritual gets afflicted by quote-unquote the corruption of the masses in terms of their intentionality in terms of how they uh, how they engage in a particular practice what do you do in that situation for the deoband school the uh, it had reached a point at which the only possible option was to outlaw these practices for the Barelvi school and Ahmad Raza Khan, no, what you did was you uh, uh, tried to uh, uh, excise the corruptions which have become attached. Don't outlaw that practice altogether. So that was a sort of subtle legal disagreement between these two schools. Um, and for Ahmad Raza Khan, one last point, he also looked at this relationship between law and history very differently. For him, there was a much more of an organic relationship between uh, history and the habit and practices of the community. So, for example, if you specify a date for a particular ritual, say the 12th of uh, Rabi al-Awwal or a particular date on which, uh, you know, uh, a particular ritual has to be uh, undertaken, for him, that ensured the continuity of the ritual. People know which date it will be performed. If you know when something is hap happening, there will be a greater likelihood that it will happen. So, for him, 
things like habit and customs and sort of the 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 everyday fabric of the community was intimately interlinked with the unfolding of history there was no need for the the religious reformer to intervene in history to intervene in time to intervene in the disciplined life of the community to awaken that community uh, and remind it of its uh, morally putrid status but rather the job of the pastoral scholar was to uh, educate the masses to engage in this kind of moral pedagogy in a manner that did not disrupt the relationship between habit and history or habit and time uh, so he saw the relationship between practice and history or time in a much more organic uh, and uh, seamless fashion than did the Deoband pioneers and you really do and we won't be able to get into all of it but throughout the book you really give us you know um very thick description a textual conversation that really unsettled binaries of like law and mysticism puritan and populist reform and tradition and as we kind of conclude our time here together i want us to maybe take a step back and look at the broader picture which really you i think you direct us towards into kind of the concluding chapters um and how is your book you know responding to uh conversations around glo- or kind of perceptions of global madrasa phobia how is your book also really getting us to think about how we engage with voices particularly internal voices or intra muslim voices as you're doing and how why is that important for the study of let's say south asian islam but also the study of religion broadly yeah and and thank you for mentioning that shobhan i i i should uh, uh you know further sort of uh, punctuate what you were just saying that uh, you know since this is an ongoing intramuslim polemic and you know this will be an interview that will be circulated i i should i should mention that uh, my descriptions of these two positions are just the sort of very short summaries uh, of these uh, scholars and their thought and what i really have tried to do is go into the depth and detail of their religious imaginaries uh, which is what i found missing in the field of south asian islam uh and in the field of south asian studies that we knew what the position of the deobandis is we knew what the position of shamma with ismail is of of kharabadi might be of ahmed rizakhan might be but how do they make their arguments what are the different sort of layers of their argumentation how do they use the same canon of hanafi law in completely different ways uh what are the kind of uh, procedures of hermeneutical operations that go into the unfolding of these debates how do they use narrative as a way to assemble their religious authority uh, sometimes uh, with some really uh, caustic use of sarcastic humor which i also mm-hmm. try to bring uh, to yeah. the table with a lot of sort of examples from uh, uh, gastronomic uh, imaginaries and so on so yeah. the reason why i say that is that uh, you know uh, just to sort of highlight that these are just trailers and and the further details can be found uh, in the book for especially those who might be normatively invested in these debates but otherwise other scholars and people also now coming to your question uh, uh, about the larger sort of uh, politics of this project now you know one of the uh, as i mentioned in the introduction of the book that one of the major stereotypes or the popular ways in which this polemic is looked at uh, today globally uh, but even in south asia for that matter uh, is that this was some kind of if a polemic between uh, the sort of uh, two group of scholars one of whom uh, believed in sort of legal reform or a certain kind of an attachment to the sharia and the others were sort of sufi Uh, mystics who believed in uh, the normativity and the permissibility of practices like celebrating the prophet's birthday who defended the prophet because of the love they had for the prophet and those were the sufis and these other deobandis are the sort of legal uh, harsh puritans and so on 
and what this book is is a detailed meditation on trying to uh, disrupt and uh, bury once and for all this law sufism binary which is operative not only in the case of examining this polemic but many such intra muslim debates now i of course am not the first one who has critiqued this binary but the reason why i think it has persisted up until now is precisely that there was not a thick description there was not a detailed description of their uh, sort of religious thought and what i've tried to show is that you know a both of these scholars were both major muslim jurists of the hanafi school and major sufi masters uh, so just empirically that binary does not work but then if you look at their internal debates you see that there is something much more profound at work here uh, there are these two competing political theologies or political theories of how the individual must relate to the social and then of course to the divine sovereign uh, through the mediating authority of the prophet in these debates uh so what i've tried to really show is that at work in the in this polemic are two uh, competing political theologies whereby for one of those political theologies uh you know the world of uh, uh everyday life and everyday practice is afflicted with moral misery and corruption and the job of the moral individual then is to set herself aside from that world of corruption to be outside time and history and to intervene in that time and history in order to reform it in order to uh, sort of cleanse it of these moral corruptions that would be the deoband school that's how basically they understand the relationship of the individual to the social and that's how you show your allegiance to the memory of the prophet and your submission to divine sovereignty whereby for the barelvi school they also understand moral corruptions they are, they are also dissatisfied with the conduct of the masses but for them it's precisely by um the it's precisely through the unfolding of everyday life through devotional practices like the celebration of the prophet's birthday and revering uh, sort of uh, uh, other uh, important uh, figures from the tradition uh it's precisely through that that one shows one's devotion to the most exalted and most beloved of all beings that is the prophet and through that one's uh, uh submission to the divine sovereign so what is at work here what i try to do is that if we we'll do a thick description of these debates what we can then do is to take these debates and polemics these intra muslim debates and polemics and put them into conversation with conceptual and theoretical questions and issues emerging from the field of religious studies and the wider humanities to show that these intra muslim debates and polemics in fact were connected to these much larger questions to do with politics political theology social order the nature of religious authority in the modern world uh, and the whole relationship between the individual and the social so uh, basically an exercise of taking these indigenous polemics from their specific problem spaces and connecting them to the problem space of the academic study of religion and the humanities that's how one can show the complexity of these polemics the sort of uh, complex ways in which the religious thought of these actors work and through that what one can do is to adopt a certain degree of humility about the surety or about the sort of uh, certainty of one's own epistemic logics and positions so for example you know to our modern sensibilities you know debates like should one celebrate the prophet's birthday or not or should one stand up Uh, in the prophet's birthday celebration should one distribute food uh, on the third day of someone's death or not should one raise one's hands while saying a prayer over that food or not which was a major uh, question of contest these might seem like arcane squabbles 
of an indigenous, uh, you know, specialized religious elite who had too much time on their hands and were debating these issues, which have nothing to do with the modern moment, right? That is the kind of smug, liberal, secular response that might be to this polemic and perhaps to to my project here. I, I hope not, but I, one can anticipate that, you know, this is just a lot of uh, uh, ex- uh, intellectual expenditure on sort of issues that have no relevance or no uh, significance to the modern moment. So I have looked at this as an exercise of trying to listen closely to the internal other. Um, I, by internal other, I mean, you know, as someone who, of course, is marked as South Asian, marked as South Asian Muslim, but I'm not a part of these madrasa traditions of knowledge. I mean, this came to my life much later through my undergraduate graduate education, primarily graduate education in the U.S. Uh, so what I've tried to do is by listening carefully to this internal other think about the kind of uh, logics through which this discursive tradition operates. Through that, try to think about ways in which the logics of this tradition does not always map onto liberal, secular binaries and categories like traditional, modern, legal, mystical, traditionalist, modernist, these kinds of binaries and categories that simplify and make digestible much more complicated and complex figures, uh, these ulama. So in some ways, it's a way of honoring a tradition, not through hagiography, but through the protocols and procedures of the academic study of religion, which is to uh, do a detailed exploration of religious thought, while also pointing to its tensions, contradictions and ambiguities. That's what I've tried to do in defending Muhammad in modernity. And you've done it really exceptionally well. And one of the things I'm really grateful for, and I think a lot of people who will pick up this book will be really grateful for, is the appendix where you kind of outline possible discussion questions of how to use chapters and sections of the book and courses in, you know, in Islam or South Asia. And I think like all books should have this. So I don't know if this is your idea or if the press invited you to do this, but I think it's fantastic addition to the book as well. Yeah, thanks for, for saying that, Shobhan. Uh, basically, inspiration was, it was a sort of a, a idea that just come, came to mind one day, uh, which was that, you know, a lot of times uh, when we teach classes, we often, uh, you know, ask uh, our colleagues or the kind of discussions on how should one teach a particular book or what is what are your suggestions of teaching this particular book or that book and so on. And my sense was, you know, as the author, I perhaps know this book the best. So I might as well take the initiative and share my thoughts of, you know, the kinds of discussion questions that might be useful for in-class discussions, for take-home exercises and so on. And with each chapter, I've given sort of discussion questions and uh, strategies and chapter assignments that might work for different kinds of classes, ranging from intro to Islam to, you know, gender and sexuality in Islam to Islamic law to South Asian Islam and so on. Uh, So that's where this idea uh, came about, uh, which is also connected to to the larger aspiration of this book, which is really to try to bring together and try to connect uh, the often disparate fields of Islamic studies, uh, sort of pre-modern Muslim intellectual traditions, South Asian Islam. Uh, South Asian studies and, of course, the broader field of religious studies and critical secularism studies to bring these different conversations together, um, hopefully productively in the classroom and outside. Oh, it's fantastic. I'm very inspired by it. And I have now this other, um, hopefully can do this in one of my future publications. Um, as we wrap up our time together, and as you know well best, um, I'm wondering what, <coughs> hopefully you're taking a break after publishing this and treating yourself, but what kind of projects are you anticipating down the road? Or are you already knee deep in a new book project or something at the moment? Yeah, so currently I'm working on a book project called Hindu Muslim Encounters, colon, Power, Politics, Political Theology. And uh, this uh, comes from a project that I actually have been working on for some time now. 
and it looks at uh, intra-Muslim debates again on, uh, but at this time, uh, not so much on uh, the question of uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, normative practice and law and theology, but rather on the question of uh, the limits of uh, friendship between Muslims and non-Muslims. And it goes from the mid-18th to the mid-20th century by looking at different themes such as Muslim expositions on Hindu thought and practice uh, to sort of inter-religious polemical festivals where sort of Hindu, Muslim and Christian missionaries debated things like miracles and so on. And then a couple of chapters on the whole uh, caliphate movement or the Khilafat movement and how that led to debates on the whole question of this triumvirate relationship between Hindus, Muslims and the British and the whole question of friendship uh, and uh, debates on cow sacrifice among Muslim scholars. Uh, uh, sort of, uh, so basically, this book is on these debates on intra, uh, rather Hindu-Muslim friendship uh, that uh, unfolded uh, from the mid-18th uh, to the mid-20th centuries. Uh, the end of that book really is exactly 100 years before uh, our present moment. And in some ways, we're seeing this uh, sort of uh, uh, theme uh, really unfolding uh, uh, in lifetime right now in South Asia. Uh, so that's basically the theme of the central monograph uh, that I'm uh, currently working on. Uh, and then I'm also planning, uh, in collaboration with uh, Professor Ibrahim Musa, uh, doing a book on the religious thought of uh, Shah Waliullah uh, for the One World Makers of the Muslim World uh, series. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, so that's more of a long-term project. So these are the two major sort of monograph-length projects that I'm currently working on. Oh, that's fantastic. I will. I look forward to both and future conversations as well. Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us to talk about uh, your fantastic new book, Defending Muhammad in Modernity. Thank you, Shobana, for your time. Really, really honored.